This podcast is sponsored by AbbVie Medical Affairs. Hear a conversation from three physicians about how they discuss the efficacy and safety of medications used to treat rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and ankylosing spondylitis with their patients. Hey, everybody. My name is Penn Wickersham. I'm a rheumatologist in San Antonio, Texas in private practice, and I'm a frequent speaker on uh, PSA and AS. I have AS, which I've had for, gosh, 27 years, so have a little bit of an insight uh, as a patient, of course, as well as a physician. Hi, Penn. This is Kevin Winthrop. I'm a professor of infectious diseases and epidemiology public health here at Oregon Health Science University, Portland, Oregon, and uh, for a long time have worked with these guys and other people in this wonderful field of rheumatology on uh, issues of drug safety associated with all your therapies. So thanks for having me. Great to be with you guys. I'm Christopher Richland, professor of medicine at the University of Rochester Medical Center in Rochester, New York, and a member of the Allergy, Immunology, and Rheumatology Division. The primary focus of my interest is the research into the mechanisms that underlie psoriatic arthritis and also to develop new therapies that are effective and safe for patients with this disease. What concerns do your patients bring up when discussing potential treatment changes? I find that historically, patients have efficacy really at the forefront of their concerns when discussing treatment options. So if we're talking about a treatment change, that means a patient has already been on at least one therapy, and for whatever reason, usually lack of efficacy needs to change. So their concern has heretofore been, is this new medication going to help? How quickly is it going to help? How much is it going to help? And that's still important to them. But more recently, there's been somewhat of a shift, I think due in part to label changes, that has patients focusing more on safety. And they really seem at this point to value having an open dialogue about the safety of various treatment options to help them really gain a better understanding of potential risks before moving ahead with a new treatment. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that patients do come in, they're very concerned about efficacy and safety of treatment regimens. Those patients that I find are extremely focused on safety are those who've experienced some kind of inadequate response or adverse event to a previous therapy. Uh, There are also a lot of concern about COVID-19, of course. And so the patients, though, it's a a risk-benefit, but also you have to weigh the value of the treatment in terms of how it makes them feel and improves their function and quality of life and balance that against the adverse events for that particular medication. Obviously, it's different for me. I'm, I'm an infectious disease physician, so I'm uh, working with the rheumatologist or GI doc or dermatologist getting referrals. Uh, you know, and these are patients that are either having a difficult time tolerating their therapy due to adverse events or they have comorbidities or risk factors for certain adverse events, particular infections, uh, in which I'm trying to mitigate. So, so sometimes that involves, um, you know, a prophylaxis or screening or vaccination. Sometimes it involves uh, recommending a therapy, uh, an alternative therapy that where the risk benefit is probably better for them based on who they are. From your perspective, what is most important to communicate to a patient when discussing the efficacy and safety for a new treatment option? It's really critical to discuss the benefits and risks that are specific to each patient in a way that they can understand uh, and allow them to really get a sense of what the short and long-term impact of the treatment options are and the importance of adhering to a medication. 
The challenge with this comes regarding certain treatment options is the lack of real-world long-term data in terms of safety. Uh, you could describe to patients the likelihood of a certain adverse event and what the predisposition for certain adverse events is due to their underlying conditions. I think it's always important also to put those in absolute numbers for them so they can understand it more effectively and uh, not talk in too many strong scientific terms. I think discussing realistic risk perception with each patient and working together to find the right treatment option is the key. Yeah, I just add to that, the whole concept of shared decision-making. I know we hear that phrase all the time, but it really is true and it is important. And um, it, every patient's different. Not only are they, their concerns potentially different, but uh, again, we've already mentioned the comorbidities, uh, the age, and, you know, all these things that play into what risk exists for certain patients. I mean, if you're 30 and have no problems other than your uh, psoriasis, you're, you know, you're, you're at a much different risk level for all these things we worry about than if you're, you know, 75 with RA and um, smoke. So we really need to, you know, focus in on um, that individual and have those discussions with them and, and, and share as much understanding as we have so they can make a decision about what to do. Yeah, I absolutely agree with, with both my colleagues here. You know, it, it's our job to openly communicate realistic expectations regarding efficacy, right? At the same time, um, being transparent about safety concerns. For some of our patients, that means really sitting down and talking about real numbers with them, right? For other patients who are perhaps less interested in that level of detail, it's more of a general discussion. I think we have to tailor it to the, the patient. So Dr. Richland, I absolutely agree with that. But the key here is transparency because patients do deserve to hear the full spectrum of potential safety concerns with treatment options. Although I will say we have to discuss this in a way that supports a realistic risk perception specific for that individual patient. Moreover, PSA is somewhat different, for example, from RA in that we have multiple domains of involvement that commonly patients have two or more of these domains that they're struggling with. These domains, of course, include psoriasis, peripheral arthritis, axial disease, dactylitis, enthesitis, as well as some patients suffer from inflammatory bowel disease and uveitis. So it's really important to consider all of these domains, as well as Kevin mentioned, the presence of comorbidities and other patient characteristics, which include age, gender, and weight, which we know are very pivotal in determining outcome in many patients. What factors do you consider regarding the efficacy and safety profile of a therapy when you have to change treatment in RA, PSA, or AS patients after they have failed a TNF inhibitor? I think that there's a range of safety events that the patients are concerned about and that you have to communicate to them regarding individual agents. Uh, and you have to really take into consideration, as we've discussed, uh, regarding their background health, previous treatments, and how they respond to alternative treatment options. If I had a patient with underlying cardiovascular disease, I would describe the potential for MACE or VTE events with JAK inhibitor treatment and explain how we would closely monitor their cardiovascular health. I would explain there's evidence to show that patients with RA, PSA, or AS are at higher risk for certain adverse events because of their diseases as well. I mean, it's really, I see these patients, the refractory patients, you, you guys see them, you guys send them, they are the most difficult and most of them just want to feel better. Uh, and, you know, I have these discussions with them and really, you know, they, you know, are they worried about X, Y, and Z? Sure. But what they're really worried about is feeling better and getting on top of their disease. 
it's so important. If you have no efficacy, then there's no reason to to be doing what you're doing. So, I mean, in the end, I, I can only help so much. I can, you know, help help the patient or the referring doc sort through, hey, these are the three best uh, options from an efficacy standpoint. You know, let's see what we can do to, to try to, you know, improve the probability the patient's going to tolerate them and do well on them. But in the end, it's really you guys figuring out those endotypes and the subtypes of disease and figuring out which, you know, which patient's going to do best with which therapy. So, so the, the first question is, is efficacy data, but not just efficacy data, but efficacy data specific to a disease state in the more refractory patients. And, and for example, in this case, patients with prior biologic trials. So we, we know those are the more refractory patients. So having proof of efficacy in those tougher patients is crucial. What's also important, and, and uh, Dr. Richland was referencing this earlier, is that we have to know the safety data, not just in aggregate, but individually for each disease state, because it's different across the disease states. What disease-specific safety events do you discuss with an RA patient versus a PSA patient versus an AS patient, if any? First and foremost is the risk for infection because those are the kinds of adverse events we see more commonly with a number of the medications that we use. Uh, I also discuss a cardiovascular risk such as MACE or VTE and malignancy uh, with the JAK inhibitors, especially if the patient has a previous experience or risk factors with any of these events. I do think that the paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine recently, which uh, was based on the oral surveillance study, really provided numbers in terms of the risk of these events that are understandable to patients. And so you know, the number needed to harm, I think, is a really important number. And when you look at the absolute numbers, it becomes a little less scary for some of the patients than when talking in other terms. So these are the kinds of data that I turn to to explain to patients what their risk might be. I try to focus on the concept of, of disease-specific risk because my experience clinically has been that, you know, across all therapies, whatever we, we do to suppress the, the immune system and the inflammation... RA patients clearly have more infection risk than PSA patients, who in general clearly ha have themselves more infection risk than AS patients. So I, I talk about really evaluating the individual patient and to that patient um, in, as such. I also try to qualify this concept at the same time with the recognition that suppressing the immune system will always have some potential risk. And when we use potent medications, we worry about those risks. Uh, we generally talk specifically about the potential for infection for cancer, for cardiovascular events, and for blood clots. Yeah, I mean, those are the adverse events of interest, I think, or, or the adverse events du jour, you know, that we all talk about and we all think about. So again, it kind of goes back to our earlier conversation, like figuring out who your patient is and where they fit in, uh, in terms of risk factors, what's their disease, what's their age, did they smoke, you know, all these things. You know, I'll jump in here and just and add on to that because I absolutely agree. You know, I find that when I have risk discussions with patients these days, they're not surprised that potent medications have risks. They want to know what the risks are, but they recognize that the stronger the medication to some extent, the more the potential risk, right? So, so I, I, I'm curious to see what, what the two of you have seen um, from a patient response in that regard. Is that kind of what you experience as well when you're talking to patients? Completely. And I think that it's changed recently, largely because of COVID-19 concerns, and also because 
patients, uh, when you make a suggestion to them, I've seen this happen a number of times now, and they'll go back and they'll get on the internet and they'll start looking at different studies or what's out there. And then they'll fire back to me and say, well, I see in this study, there was this and this and that. And what do you think about that? And I didn't see that so much before, but now it's very common in my practice. And I expect it. It's fine. It really increases my ability to communicate the risks and benefits to the patients and it shows that they're really interested in learning more about the uh, a specific medication and their disease. How do you discuss JAK inhibitor safety with your patients? Is there anything specific to upadacitinib that you discuss? The psoriatic arthritis population generally compared to RA is a bit younger. Uh, they uh, don't have some of the other com comorbidities that you might see in RA in the older population. Uh, and the major concern, as Kevin mentioned, is our patients that are have a cardiovascular risk factor, they're over the age of 65, and they smoke. I'll say that there were problems seen in patients over the age of 65 who smoked, and, and that that was the major population, and you don't fit there. So we can talk more about it if you like to. Very good point. I appreciate that. I absolutely agree. Back to looking at the individual patient, using the data the best we can to, to tailor the risk assessment for that patient. You know, the kind of the way I do it is, again, as I was saying earlier, I emphasize how strong JAK inhibitors are from a medication perspective, and there are absolutely safety concerns. We're still teasing out and will probably be for some time. But then I also try to break out the safety data specific for upadacitinib for those adverse events of concern, you know, the big four we've been talking about here. As a rheumatologist, what do you think is most important to keep in mind for the adverse events of malignancy, lymphoma, and non-melanoma skin cancer when using a JAK inhibitor? Is there anything specific to upadacitinib that you would consider for these events? So, so I think the, the most important point to consider and to be clear about with patients is, of course, there have been increases in malignancy as a whole, uh, lymphoma specifically, and non-melanoma skin cancer with the JAK inhibitor therapy. And that, I try to contextualize this for the patients, though, that there is also potential background malignancy risk inherent to their disease, especially, for example, for the RA patients. Um, specific to upadacitinib, I mean, I try to focus on proper patient selection, right? The, the patients who are at much higher risk for malignancy or have a recent malignancy you know, are probably not the best candidates for, for JAK inhibitors in general. Um, and I also try to remember to remind every single patient, as I would on other advanced therapies, that they need to see their dermatologist for their regular skin checks. As a rheumatologist, what do you think is the most important thing to keep in mind for the adverse events of MACE, VTE, and mortality when using a JAK inhibitor? What's really critical in our practice with PSA and AS patients, and RA as well, of course, is that they really understand how their comorbidities can influence outcomes from the disease and increase the likelihood of side effects. And these comorbidities that we focus on, and I'm sure my colleagues do as well, are obesity, particularly extreme obesity, type 2 diabetes uh, are, are really very critical problems for our patients, not only taking JAK inhibitors, but other uh, biologic agents as well. So we really work with them, whether we have to do it through a weight loss program uh, or other kinds of uh, interventions such as controlling lipids, blood pressure, et cetera. So that's, I think that's really something we, we focus on. As an infectious disease expert, 
What are some of the things that you tell rheumatologists to keep in mind regarding serious infection, TB, and opportunistic infection when prescribing a JAK inhibitor? Is there anything specific to you, Patacitinib, that should be considered for these events? I think, you know, rheumatologists are, are, have always been a bit ahead of the curve relative to the other specialties, but definitely took, took the issues of vaccination very seriously early on and of uh, screening and infection prevention. Obviously, things change over time. Our vaccinations uh, change over time. I and mean, COVID, uh, as Chris mentioned, was a big challenge uh, for the last two years, trying to figure out uh, the best ways to protect uh, rheumatology patients, either by you know active immunization or passive immunity and monoclonal antibody therapy, et cetera. So um, there was a lot to work on uh, and a lot of questions from patients the last few years, specifically around COVID. Um, I mean, in the end, it just kind of added another, you know, another infection that we that we need to think about um, to our list, along with flu and pneumococcal disease and, you know, reactivation of varicella and shingles. So, um, you know, I, I think, you know, a lot of studies have been done. There's still more studies that need to be done in terms of how to prevent some of these things or the best ways to vaccinate um, people, depending on what DMARD they're on. What discussions should a rheumatologist have with patients regarding herpes zoster when prescribing a JAK inhibitor? Is there anything specific to upadacitinib that should be discussed for herpes zoster? I think we've probably just covered the zoster issue. And it's not just UPA, it's all the JAKs. Um, and I do think the vaccine you know, issue we just covered. I mean, I, I would just add that there's some people that uh, still develop shingles despite vaccination. What information do you share about background rates or the risk of untreated disease for adverse events in RA, PSA, and AS when considering treatment for a patient? Really being clear with patients and sharing the concept of disease-associated risk is important because it allows patients to, to understand that, you know, this is not just we're going to give you this medication that has these risks, and if you don't take the medication, you have no risk. It's, it's quite, the, quite different, right? Um, there's significant risk of untreated disease. And so we, we know, for example, that RA, PSA, and AS patients have increased cardiovascular risk, especially when their disease is, is are it, untreated, right? It's still active. So communicating clearly about this allows patients to really grasp that concept that their untreated disease may also be a significant health risk for them. If we don't control their underlying inflammatory disease, and inflammation is an accelerator for these a adverse events, and that is something we need to try and avoid at all costs. So without making them feel guilty, but making them a member of the treatment plan team, I think we found that's the most effective strategy to try and improve not only their underlying psoriasis and PSA, but their overall health. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I, I don't know that I have a ton more to add other than, you know, there, there's not a lot of modern data in any of these diseases that tells you what the risks are of the disease untreated with regards to these adverse events. When I could conclude with patients, um, just to sort of reiterate here, I remind them at the end of the visit, you know, it's important to consider their disease-associated risk, both in terms of risk for adverse events uh, specific to them, them individually with their disease, as well as the risk of untreated disease. I talk about the concept of strong medications, especially when we're, we're talking about JAK inhibitors, and that there is going to be some inherent potential risk from, from a strong medication. And then I try to conclude with a contextualization of, of their risk as much as is possible with, with the data we have so far. Upadacitinib is a Janus kinase inhibitor 
indicated for the treatment of adults with moderate to severely active rheumatoid arthritis who have had an inadequate response or intolerance to one or more tumor necrosis factor blocker. Adults with active psoriatic arthritis who have had an inadequate response or intolerance to one or more TNF blockers. And adults with active ankylosing spondylitis who have had an inadequate response or intolerance to one or more TNF blockers. The use of epanacitinib in combination with other JAK inhibitors, biologic TMARs, or with potent immune suppressants such as azathioprine and cyclosporine is not recommended. Patients treated with epanacitinib are at an increased risk for developing serious infections that may lead to hospitalization or death. These infections include tuberculosis, invasive fungal, bacterial, viral, and other infections due to opportunistic pathogens. Most patients who developed these infections were taking concomitant immunosuppressants, such as methotrexate or corticosteroids. Test for latent TB before and during therapy. Treat latent TB prior to use. Consider the risks and benefits prior to initiating therapy in patients with chronic or recurrent infection. If a serious infection develops, interrupt eupatacitinib until the infection is controlled. In a post-marketing safety study in RA patients greater than or equal to 50 years of age with at least one cardiovascular risk factor comparing another JAK inhibitor to TNF blockers, a higher rate of all-cause mortality, including sudden CV death, was observed with the JAK inhibitor. Malignancies have been observed in eupatacitin-treated patients. In RA patients treated with another JAK inhibitor, a higher rate of lymphomas and lung cancers was observed when compared with TNF blockers. Patients who are current or past smokers are at additional increased risk. Consider the benefits and risks for the individual patient prior to initiating or continuing therapy with eupatacitinib, particularly in patients with a known malignancy. Patients who develop a malignancy went on treatment and patients who are current or past smokers. In RA patients who are greater than or equal to 50 years of age with at least one CV risk factor, treated with another JAK inhibitor, a higher rate of MACE, was observed compared with TNF blockers. Patients who are current or past smokers are at additional increased risk. Consider the benefits and risks for the individual patient prior to initiating or continuing therapy with eupatacitinib. Patients should be informed about the symptoms of serious CV events and the steps to take if they occur. Discontinue eupatacitinib in patients that have experienced a myocardial infarction or stroke. Thrombosis, including deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, and arterial thrombosis have occurred in patients treated with JAK inhibitors, including eupatacitinib. Many of these adverse events were serious, and some resulted in death. In RA patients who are greater than or equal to 50 years of age with at least one CV risk factor treated with another JAK inhibitor, a higher rate of thrombosis was observed when compared with TNF blockers. Avoid eupatacitinib in patients at risk. Patients with symptoms of thrombosis should discontinue eupatacitinib and be promptly evaluated. Eupatacitinib is contraindicated in patients with known hypersensitivity to eupatacitinib or any of its excipients. Serious hypersensitivity reactions such as anaphylaxis and angioedema were reported in patients receiving eupatacitinib in clinical trials. If a clinically significant hypersensitivity reaction occurs, discontinue eupatacitinib and institute appropriate therapy. Patients treated with eupatacitinib also may be at risk for other serious adverse reactions, including gastrointestinal perforations, neutropenia, lymphopenia, anemia, lipid elevations, liver enzyme elevations, and embryo-fetal toxicity. Avoid use of live vaccines during or immediately prior to eupatacitinib therapy. 
Prior to initiating upadacitinib, it is recommended that patients be brought up to date with all immunizations, including varicella zoster or prophylactic herpes zoster vaccinations, in agreement with current immunization guidelines. The most common adverse reactions, greater than or equal to 1%, are upper respiratory tract infections, herpes zoster, herpes simplex, bronchitis, nausea, cough, pyrexia, acne, and headache. Review accompanying upadacitinib full prescribing information for additional information. Visit www.rxabv.com or contact AbbVie Medical Information at 1-800-633-9110.